No, no, I'm I'm Kate Winslet on the door because he's the one that goes, Jack, come back. And then he floats down to the ocean and it's sad. Which, by the way, they both could have fit on the door, but that's a debate for another day, I guess. But... Oh, they both could have fit on that door, 100%. <laughs> everyone, I think everyone on the internet agrees on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen some people that are like, well, then the door would have sank. And I was like, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> Y'all, like... Uh, one of those, like, swimming tubes, you could fit two people on that and still float. I think a door is enough to, to float as well. Whatever. They're wrong, we're right. <laughs> when in doubt, Bob and Katie are right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we'll talk about the action plan on global water security that Vice President Kamala Harris announced earlier this month. And we'll also talk about research that American Water conducted on Americans' perceptions of water infrastructure. Lastly, our interview this month is with Millicent Pitts. She's executive director of Ocean Ocean Exchange, with whom I spoke about One Water, the circular economy, and trends as it relates to both technologies and frameworks for discussing water issues as a global community in addition to a local one. But first, let's start with the American water research. Uh, we had a feature on Water and Waste Digest this month from American Water that shared some of their research they conducted on people's perception of water infrastructure in the United States. There were six key areas that they noted where Americans misunderstand the depths of water infrastructure issues in the US. Notably, they are size, lifespan, cost, commonality of problems, external threats, and negative effects from consumers. Now, what I will say about this is none of these seemed really out of the ordinary for misconceptions. They all seem pretty basic, and that identifies to me that we're not even doing a good enough job at a foundational level of explaining a lot of what's going on in the municipal water and wastewater industry to our customers. And I think this is something that we all really do know is true, that water and wastewater facilities have often tried to be the silent utility and i think that that really is truly changing right now where more of those facilities are reaching out to their customer bases and sharing knowledge and understandings about how their facilities work what their networks look like look like the size they are and just how expensive it is to actually run something like that and i think when you're talking about like size and lifespan people misunderstand just how many lines of pipe there are in the united states they may think there's only a certain million miles or less the the, the estimate that they said nearly half of consumers believe that underground pipes measure 1 million miles or less and 30% estimate it's only 500,000 miles or less, when in reality it's 2.2 million miles. That's an enormous gap. They only think yeah. that half half of the pipes exist. And that's just for the size. The same thing right. happens with lifespan. They don't really understand. They think everything's only 48 years old when in reality it's 75 to 100. It's just it's a really cool article. I highly recommend you check it out. It'll be in our show notes. So definitely go give it a read and learn a little bit more about some of the misconceptions so that you can start communicating with your customers and your communities about why water misconceptions even exist. 
Yeah, absolutely. I know I will be reading the article because that is interesting. And I think I've been talking to a lot of, you know, industry professionals recently who, you know, we always talk about how a lot of, you know, citizens who are not in the industry get their drinking water and their clean water and and don't totally understand all the work or infrastructure it takes to get that to happen. So uh, Mm -hmm. I'm interested to read this article and to get some, some more details on that for sure. Yeah, I think what's interesting too, when you talk about the costs, I think there's two elements of cost there. There's the cost of actually capital projects and whatnot, and then there's the cost of maintaining and treatment and just the day-to-day. I think there's a huge misconception there too, which is also kind of highlighted in this article of like, the cost of treatment is not very well understood in the United States at all. And it's a, a big issue with trying to get capital projects off the ground and why those capital projects cost as much as they do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will be sure to link that article in the episode show notes so that you guys can access that um, pretty easily. Um, And other news, earlier this month, uh, Vice President Harris announced an action plan on global water security. According to a White House press release, this plan, quote, outlines an innovative approach to advancing water security at home and abroad. This plan identifies the direct links between water and U.S. national security, and it will harness the resources of the U.S. government, end quote, um, including leveraging science and technology. The plan is centered around three pillars, which are advancing U.S. leadership and the global effort to achieve universal and equitable access to sustainable, climate-resilient, safe, and effectively managed wash services without increasing greenhouse gas emissions. The second one is promoting sustainable management and protection of water resources and associated ecosystems to support economic growth, build resilience, mitigate the risk of instability or conflict, and increase cooperation. And the third is ensuring that multilateral action mobilizes cooperation and promotes water security. So that's just a very, very brief overview. We will link the detailed plan in the episode show notes as well. One thing I would like to add onto this actually is you see you have these three key points here and I want to note how they really align with stuff that we are seeing from the bipartisan infrastructure law as well. Mm-hmm. I actually recently hosted a webinar on the state revolving funds and how to make your application more appealing and what the frameworks are that defined the infrastructure law and the three key words that we heard in the research for this and in the discussions for it were equity, sustainability, and resilience. And it's so Mm -hmm. clear that reading those three particular key points for this action plan that all three are represented in there. Uh, I think that this is something really important for our listeners to pay attention to. And I definitely suggest you watch the webinar. It's on demand. You can access it at bit.ly slash WWD Bentley webinar. We'll have it in the show notes as well. It's got a lot of information on this and it really ties in perfectly with what this action plan is trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and they do in the press release mention, you know, this, you know, is in addition to the bipartisan infrastructure law, which, you know, already was working on drought resilience, replacing lead pipes and, and other things that we have, you know, covered. So yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's these really key themes that are being addressed in many different ways right now, which is great to see. And with that, we're going to start throwing to our interview with Millicent Pitts. She is the executive director of Ocean Exchange. We talked about one water, water scarcity, and technology to advance one water efforts. So now we are here with Millicent Pitts. 
Millicent. She is Executive Director of Ocean Exchange. Millicent, thank you so much for being here with us today and talking to us about the, this this subject of ocean exchange and water and one water circular economy stuff and what you guys are doing in that space. Thank you, Bob, and I appreciate the ability to be on Talking Underwater, and the timing is really perfect. We've just celebrated World Ocean Day on June 8th, but this topic is so big, it has its own month. Uh, the month of June is dedicated to the ocean. Yeah, for sure. And the, and it's not like just this month where there's a focus on water. You've got other months that have different uh, specific water stuff. There's World Water Day. You've got Imagine a Day Without Water later in the year in October. So it's like there isn't just a one conversation on water. It's a co constant conversation on water. And the UN declared a whole decade about the ocean. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ocean Exchange? Could you talk a little bit about what you guys do and how you fit into the grander scheme of the water industry? Great. Uh, yes, thanks. Uh, ocean Exchange is in its 11th year, and we accelerate innovative solutions for healthy oceans. And I'm going to also add uh, sustainable and resilient coastal systems since we're also connecting the dots to to fresh water and land and we also support a sustainable blue economy and that's a relatively new term and and we can talk about that later we execute our mission in two ways we have a purse of awards uh, I, I tell people we give away free money, and that always makes them uh, laugh and giggle a little bit. The, the fancy financial term for that is non-dilutive funding. That is, we don't take equity. So these are real grants. This year, we'll have a purse that exceeds 300000 We're moving to a purse, hopefully, of half a million, and then we think in several years we can double that to a million-dollar purse. Uh, over several awards. So we do that through an entire process where we invite innovators that are in startups to register with us and tell us about their, uh, their solutions. And we use the word solution in a very, very purposeful way. We do all of that and that ends up with this award granting and it's, it's a lot of fun. The whole process is a lot of fun. Then the other part of our mission, we are ecosystem builders. And we've done this for our whole uh, 10 years uh, quite extensively. What does that mean? We support innovators uh, more than just our awards. We introduce them to people that need, uh, that need their solutions. And the innovators need the contact with these people in the industries to pilot their solutions. Innovators need a lot more than money. They need the connection with the end user. So we do all of that. Yeah, totally. I the, that's really cool how you're scaling and growing this uh, these grant funds. And Lord knows that in the United States, that's that's an area innovating in the water industry can be really risky and challenging. And having something like this available to, to tap for innovative resources could be really useful from an R and D perspective for sure too. Um, there are others like us. We uh, we don't really compete. I would say every new party that does something similar to what we do, the whole pie gets bigger and better. Um, there are other contests, there are incubators where, where parties physically have a residence for three months or six months to work on their business plans. We refer leads, leads or startups and innovators to each other. It's a very uh, 
collaborative and cooperative network in a very good way. So moving more into like our podcast, we talk a lot about one water and just how all water is connected and whatnot. How do, how do you view that from your perspective doing like these grant fundings, trying to find solutions providers, meeting them with the end user. How do you view this whole idea and concept of One Water? Is this something that you think about in your in your like day to day? We do. When we started 10 years ago, I would say the people that worked in freshwater, and those were a lot of people in the utility industry, for example, and the ocean people, uh, I think they saw each other in separate domains. And that is converging rapidly. And all the smart money is really thinking about one water. And in fact, the ocean people now talk about one ocean and the people that are working on climate talk about one climate. So there's a bigger movement, I would say, than just the one water movement. And when I read about one water very particularly, I see the words sustainable, integrated and equitable approaches. And sustainable and integrated approaches to me means some system thinking. I also see the word holistic used and I love that. Uh, over the years, we have seen solutions that are, are very interesting from a technology point of view, but the overall system, and I use the word system very gener generically that they have to fit into, uh, doesn't easily allow for the adoption of this awesome innovative solution. So again, the smart money is thinking very, very broadly about the whole system, including people. And I know the one water approach also deals with the people in the social part of it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's part of a bigger movement. There are non-water examples about this that I think illustrate it in a very, very simple way. We've seen all the news and the images about ships off of certain coasts, certain ports, you know, waiting to unload. Well, what keeps that supply chain from working? Uh, it's because the pieces of the system aren't working together, right? They don't fit together. Uh, there may be more containers than there are trucks to move them, or maybe there's a driver shortage. Um, you mentioned the term circular economy when we, um, mm -hmm. or circularity when you introduce me. Uh, in the plastics debris area, this has been a problem for, uh, for years where innovative solutions are put forward, but the whole uh, waste management system, you know, from start to scratch and thinking about how uh, your plastic shampoo bottle is disposed of at the end of its life. All, all of that hasn't been taken into account. So uh, we have always seen a connection between ocean water and freshwater. Uh, when we talk about our mission, we talk about coastal systems. The number is something like this. There are th 3 billion people that live within 100 kilometers or 60 miles of a big body of water. So it's hard to separate what happens in the ocean or the, these big bays or estuaries from uh, what are largely big urban areas, big consumers of water, big stormwater and wastewater systems. We see them uh, integrated and we have from the beginning and we seek solutions that also uh, help, help the world think about these integrated solutions. It's really fascinating to hear that there is this movement of one ocean and one climate. It all makes sense because 
for years we've kind of operated in these individual silos and the the problem with operating in those silos is that if you solve a problem in one silo it might create a problem in one of the other ones without you realizing it um so taking this holistic view of things and looking at hey if we solve this problem if we solve this problem with this portion of the ocean what impact does that have on the ocean after the current goes you know thousands of kilometers <laughs> you know so makes no it no kidding difference. <laughs> the law of unintended consequences. Uh, the other term that I that I stands out to me when I read about one water uh, is this equitable approach. Mm -hmm. And you know whether uh, the container arrives with my new TV, I would say my life is not greatly impacted. But water, of course, is essential to human life and human health. Mm -hmm. So this consideration about the equity equity in all of this is is as important as everything else. So kind of pivoting a little bit, how, how does water scarcity factor into the conversations that you have with Ocean Exchange and the clients that you're working with, the grant funding elements? Um, what, you know, where, where does water scarcity fall in all of that? It's huge. I, it could be the number one topic, uh, not just reacting to this week's headlines about California, right? Six million people under uh, restrictions I've never seen before. I read uh, the drought is 1200 year drought. Now, I don't know how they calculate that, but I'll accept that it's a, it's a very historic drought, of course. Indeed. Uh, and people say water is the new oil. So mm. uh, it's, it's more essential than oil. Uh, it's essential to life, but it's essential to, to modern life as well, not just existence and for development in, in uh, the developing world. So the water equals oil. It's overused a bit, but I think for a good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, we have seen over the years quite a few uh, solutions put forward about desalination. And that is always almost a knee jerk solution to to how you get more water you know water water everywhere and nothing to drink of course and people in california and israel and places like that feel that uh, something came across my desk today the the u.s department of uh, energy has put out almost 18 million dollars for uh to help develop more innovation for energy efficient desalination. Desalination exists, the basic technology is there. There's, I don't think there's very little that's new about it. It has never been able to take off in a grand way because it's not very cost effective with the energy. So if we can solve the efficient energy part of desalination, um, that could be a real winner. So I'm gonna start looking for more of these solutions in desalination. So it, we see this a lot and it all relates to water scarcity. The other piece of water scarcity, of course, that we encounter is in uh, the waste of water in these big uh, municipal and private systems. It's enormous. Uh, I've read numbers that there are between 20 and 50% of the water that's lost. It's lost to leaks and evaporation. I spent 30 years in the chemical and materials industry, and you could think of other process industries like food processing or, you know, the, the making of your shampoo or hand lotion, any of these kind of process industries. Um, one could not be in business if one had 20 to 50 percent loss of your input, right? Um, so this is, it's a staggering number. 
it's been hidden from the public because sort of the business models around water and how rates are set. So people will just pay for this, right? They don't know they're paying for uh, a 30 or 40% water loss, but effectively as consumers, we pay for that. Uh, these water uh, losses are worth $2.6 billion and a couple of trillion gallons. So when we talk about scarcity, it seems like we have to go tackle uh, some of these structural inefficiencies that lead to these kind of losses. Mm -hmm. And some of that may just be engineering 101. Uh, it's probably going to take capital, our infrastructure in, in the US and probably in Western Europe and a lot of the developing world is, is getting old and, and, and cranky and creaky, right? Yeah. Um, but we have to seek these solutions. And so we, uh, we, we look for them. As I said, we've had solutions apply. We've had winners, actually, that deal with water scarcity before. That's great. And one thing I will note, too, I don't want to mean to drag out the water scarcity conversation, but one point I wanted to highlight as well is that scarcity can also be a result of water quality. So you might have a lot of water, but the quality isn't there. In the same way that salty water presents a challenge, there's also poor water quality that presents a challenge. You got all this water here, but none of it's good enough to drink. It's hard to treat. You know, all of that can become a problem as well. Um, it is. You know, one stat I read you know, in preparation of talking to you is 40% of the world's population is going to be impacted by water scarcity by 2035. So there are a I lot of it. national security, uh, big social issues uh, related to this. And parts of the developing world, uh, women take their children out of school, uh, you know, in when they're young, uh, let's say U.S. equivalent of a fourth or fifth or sixth grade and they don't go to school and they have to spend hours every day searching for fresh water for the family so uh, how does how does that family sort of raise up its economic levels when when one spends uh, all day just looking for water and also energy sources as well uh, the other thing about water scarcity that really strikes me and i don't want to belabor it either is in the uh, agriculture space oh yeah where where one reads that 30 to 40% of food is wasted, right? Well, any food that is produced, grown, and if it's processed, right, it's processed or packaged, it's carrying a toll of water and energy with it. And if you're wasting the food, all that water and energy that went to, you know, in the agriculture or land-based uh, fish farming or what, whatever it is, uh, all those inputs of water and energy are wasted when the food is wasted. So that that is something that has to be tackled since 70% of fresh water goes into agriculture. Oh yeah, ag is such a huge portion of the, of the equation there for sure. So pivoting a little bit more, talking back a little bit on what you do with ocean exchange mm -hmm. like the grant funding and stuff like that you, there's some mention i reading your website it looks like you guys help evaluate some startups and these technology innovations as part of this grant program could you talk a little bit about what you do to evaluate those and then also what trends you're seeing in terms of the folks who are coming to you with ideas yes so uh, we do what we call we open a call for solutions so that's an invitation for these innovators and startups we don't deal with innovation in big companies that's also good that's just outside of our mission mm -hmm. uh, we invite them to apply and the application is you know pretty standard we ask them what problem are you solving how big is the market 
Uh, how are you gonna raise the money to do what you wanna do? Can you protect your technology? Um, there's no gotcha in the, in the questions. And we collect them all. We form a review team of experts and at oceanexchange.org under about, one could see these kind of experts that do a pretty high level of due diligence about these startups. And we evaluate them based on three elements. One is impact, second is level of innovation, and the third is the ability to execute. So impact is if they claim that they can uh, save water, it's, you know, how much can you say, right? We're looking for things that are globally scalable, big stuff, not little small community-based innovation, which is good. I'm a citizen in a community and I like those, but the mission of Ocean Exchange is to look for the real big stuff. So that's what impact is. Whatever they're claiming, we want it to be big and large and globally scalable. Level of innovation, you know, one might think, well, how many patents they have or something like that. The level of innovation is a proxy, in a sense, for their competitive advantage they may have. Competitive advantage, you know, often, it's not the only element of success, but it's an important one. Uh, they can attract capital then if they have a high level of innovation and competitive advantage. And then that third one, ability to execute. It's a lot of things that one thinks about in a normal business plan. The team, how they're going to finance it, what kind of business model. Uh, simple questions like, are you going to sell a product or a service? And for a startup, that's often one of the very difficult questions that they struggle with at the beginning. It may seem self-evident to us, but it is not that self-evident. Uh, we equally weight these three items. Uh, we go through two rounds of review. We pick 25 semifinalists in the first round. In the second round, we pick uh, 12 finalists. Uh, we are uh, agnostic about the forms of solution. We don't really care as long as they're solving these big problems in a big way. Mm -hmm. And we uh, don't have any geographic limitations. We're international in scope. We bring this, these finalists to uh, an annual event that we have. We were in Savannah, Georgia for a number of years. We're now in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And we, uh, through the generosity of our sponsors, and we're privately funded, I didn't mention that at the beginning, we fly one person from that startup company to Fort Lauderdale, and they spend two days with a VIP group of uh, attendees that we call delegates. The attendees come from people that are investors, people that run big businesses and know these markets today, including water market, but not certainly not limited to water. <clears throat> uh, social scientists. Uh, we started off talking about one water and the holistic approach and you know how it impacts people. So we like social scientists to say, can these solutions actually be adopted by real, real people in the real world, right? Are they just theoretical? Mm -hmm. uh, so we put it, all these people in a room, they hear pitches from the startups, and it's, it's this group of people that votes who gets that purse of money. So we're not open to the public. It's not the cool kids, people choice award. We have quite a history now in 10 years of success of the parties that have come through us. Um, how do we measure success? Uh, one has had an IPO uh, of our winners. 
uh, many have raised significant, significant funding. They have uh, technical success and uh, they are achieving real customers and they're selling and they're getting commercialized. So that's how, when we look in the rear view mirror, that's how we know we're successful in selecting down that original applicant group to the people that have the greatest chance of success based on impact level of innovation and the ability to execute. So trends, you asked me about trends. Yeah, yeah, trends too. I imagine that you see a lot of really interesting uh, solutions and uh, service ideas. So I, I'm curious like what you're seeing in terms of trends uh, from a global, from a macro and micro scale. Uh, I was uh, very privileged to be on NOAA's subcommittee for the blue economy in 2020. And there, there are different elements of how people think about the blue economy the way NOAA does it. There are 10 verticals and it, it's quite interesting, but it seemed as though no matter what vertical that we were talking about, whether it was uh, the water impact on tourism or uh, aquaculture or infrastructure or whatever, uh, everything came back down to data. There are great needs today for observations and measurements. And you know, there's another well-worn saying, but it's used for a reason. Uh, you can't manage what you can't measure. And there is a great need for measurement in the whole water space, ocean water and fresh water today. So we see a great trend there. And then the, the vehicles, literally and figuratively, by which those measurements occur. So there's you know great move to different kinds of autonomous methods to do this water measurement, and then everyone wants it in real time. You know the old-fashioned way: some guy went on a flat boat and collected some water samples, and then you know maybe did some <laughs> fishing. You know went back to the shore, went back to the lab, and you know three days later someone may have had some measurements. You know there's a great need with all of our life, right? Uh, instantaneous data and uh, that's true in both uh, ocean water and fresh water. I would say that is the single biggest trend. Um, the other trend I see and it, it connects back to the systems thinking and one water and one ocean and holistic thinking. Mm -hmm. The successful startups that we see are coming to us already understanding they need to be part of a bigger system and they are already setting up partnerships. So the idea of some guy in his garage who has an idea and he's going to go commercialize it is really <laughs> something from the, from the 60s or 70s. Um, the sophisticated way of thinking about all this innovation is in the system and what kind of partnerships one needs to to get it in the system and get it deployed. Um, and so that, that has a lot of implications for, um, for all the startups, but, but it's gonna advance them a lot faster. I wrote down scarcity, we've already kind of you know, covered that, but any solution that deals with water scarcity, I think will, uh, in, in its legitimate, is gonna to rise to the top of people's interest in, in thinking. And, um, and then these things that connect fresh water and ocean water. Mm. Um, how many closed beaches have you heard about and the impact that has on tourism and quality of life, frankly? Mm -hmm. uh, algae blooms, you know, from Agrinol. 
it's a big deal. Uh, I think that's a huge trend of looking for solutions for that because our need for agriculture is growing, not diminishing, right? And how to stop that and even at the source, how to use less of those chemicals that, that get into the runoff that, that cause eutrophication. So I think that is a huge trend. And uh, the other thing that I think we'll, we'll hear more about in coastal systems are solutions to stop saltwater intrusion into the wells and aquifers and so forth. I lived on a coastal island for a few years and people had shallow wells to, as a rather sustainable way to do their landscape watering. And uh, very typically someone would go away for vacation for a week and come back and you know, $50,000 of landscape uh, plants and grass are dead because salt water got into uh, these wells. So the salt water intrusion, because we have so many people living in coastal areas, it's a big problem, big uh, trend line issue looking for solutions. Well, Millie, it was so great to talk to you about all of this. It's uh, like it's very clear how passionate you are about the entire thing, and how and how you see all these dots are connected to one another. It, it really is really enjoyable to to listen to you talk about all of these issues. And um, looking forward to the next time that we can chat. Uh, I've really appreciated it. Uh, happy uh, World Ocean Month in June, <laughs> and um, and. Uh, and I hope to stay connected with you, Bob. We will indeed. Well, thank you so much, Millie. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this issue and about the circular economy and One Water. It was really fascinating to hear what you are hearing on the ground and how you are trying to advance some of those technologies to make those efforts a little bit easier and more sustainable, especially for some of those smaller companies. But now it is time for some housekeeping. So Katie, would you like to take us away with WQP to start? Sure. So the uh, Water Quality Products Young Professionals nominations are now open. You can nominate yourself, your peers, your colleagues at www.wqpmag.com slash young-professionals-nominations. Uh, nominations do close on July 1st. So just be aware of that. Good to know. Get in your nominations now. And on, <laughs> and on the topic of Young Pros, the Water and Waste Digest 2022 Young Pros are now all featured on our website in both a Q&A written format as well as video interviews. Please do check out those video interviews. They're very interesting. You can learn a little bit more about each of them. Just go to our playlist, which you can find at bit.ly slash videos. And while you're there, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for weekly video interviews with thought leaders in the municipal and water sector all across the industry. And two quick announcements for Stormwater Solutions. First, nominations are now open for our 2022 top projects. Nominations will be open until September 5th, but don't delay. Go ahead and submit your hard work today at bit.ly slash SWS top projects 22. And uh, finally, our next webinar is on June 23rd. We're going to be talking about low impact development and you can register for free at bit.ly slash SWS June web. 
And with that, that concludes our episode. So don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.